probably the biggest thing for me is treat antimicrobials as a non-renewable resource instead of treating them as a renewable resource. And given their cost and their ease of um, eat the ease of getting them, I think we have typically treated them as something that's just infinitely available and renewable. And the truth is, anytime we use it, we're probably decreasing the efficacy for somebody somewhere else. And we may not know who that is or, or, or what pigs those are, but it's, so it's easy to be disconnected. But I think we can feel very confident that that's the case now. And so um, treating them as a non-renewable resource is important. And, and that means focus on fixing all the other stuff first before we get to antimicrobials. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like EveryPig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode-sponsored highlight is about NutriQuest. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by service, and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technology and efficient operation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Laura Greiner. Today on our Swine It podcast, we have Dr. Locke Carriker with us. Dr. Locke Carriker is the moral professor and director for the Swine Medicine Education Center at the Iowa State University's Veterinary College. Hello, Locke. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? Good. Thank you. Well, Locke, for our audience who may not be familiar with you, would you mind giving just a brief introduction about yourself and how you got to where you're at today? Uh, sure, I'm, I've been involved in the pig business so really in one form or another my entire life. I grew up on a small diversified farm in Eastern North Carolina, um, to undergraduate University of North Carolina and then on to vet school at Mississippi State. And uh, while I was there, got a master's degree as well and then went out to Seaboard Foods in Guymon, Oklahoma and spent four years there. Um, which was part really an intense part of my education as much as anything. And so I uh, learned a lot there and then uh, joined the faculty at Iowa State in 2003 and um, uh, primarily had a research appointment initially, but then an opportunity came to take on more teaching and, and has slowly evolved over the years. And so now I'm about 50% teaching, which is primarily consumed with uh, managing the Swan Med Education Center. And then the, the rest of my job is a mix of applied research and um, uh, recommendations or referral cases from practitioners in the field. So it's a, it's a fun mix that I, that I really enjoy. 
-hmm. For those of the audience that may not be familiar with SMEC or the Swine Medicine Education Center, could you maybe give just a little bit of background about what that entails? Sure. The Swine Med Education Center was really founded um, in 2010, and it was born out of a recognition that um, not all vet schools are going to be able to maintain all the resources to teach swine medicine or, um, in many cases, all of the species. And so when we looked around, we had the opportunity in, in terms of our location and network and so forth to, to potentially build that swine center. And so that's what we did um, very early in that thought process. Um, uh, Dr. Olson and Dr. Hooker from AMVC um, said, you know, we, we feel passionately about this topic. We'd like to be involved. And so what evolved out of that was a public-private um, collaboration that's really led to um, trying to be the uh, resource that uh, folks need to learn about swine medicine. So it's our goal to, to be able to demonstrate live or digitally every swine medicine technique that might be used in practice or research and then preserve and maintain a place for students to actually practice those in, in modern production facilities. Yeah, they, you have some great resources. I've been to your website. And now every day I play the, the SMEC daily game and uh, <laughs> yeah. we have a little competition to see who's going to guess right today. So I really do enjoy working with, with the SMEC team. And I think it's, it's great if, for those of you who aren't familiar with it to take a moment and, and jump on their website and, and look around a little bit at the resources that are available. Absolutely. I, re I really appreciate that. I've been getting several emails lately that, you know, if they answer five questions in a row, shouldn't they get a DBM degree? And it doesn't, doesn't work <laughs> quite that way, but well, it's a lot of inquiry. Uh, that's what I was teasing. The nutritionist is becoming the vet, right? I can actually <laughs> right. prove that I, that I know my vet knowledge. Right. <laughs> I, I would benefit from a daily nutrition question. I'll just put that out there. I could, I could wow. use the help. Challenge might be accepted there. That's a good <laughs> a good thought, Locke. But let's let's jump in today and talk about some some swine medicine, if you will. Um, the topic on our plate today is really about antibiotics and antibiotic usage. I and certainly this has been a topic we've talked about for years. Um, we've seen over the last five years the VFDs being put in place. We've seen a lot more discussion with production groups calculating how much antibiotic they're using, whether it's per pig or annually. Um, so maybe let's just start there and, you know, why is there such a big push really in the last five years to, to talk about antibiotic usage in the swine industry? Well, that, you know, that's a great question. And I think um, we have seen a, an, an intense increase in um, uh, a desire to understand exactly what goes into the food supply and how antibiotics are used, not just from a food safety standpoint, but also in terms of how that might lead to resistance or um, create an opportunity for um, increased resistance in human infections and failures of treatment and so forth. I think it's important for us in the swine industry to recognize that you know, it's not just the farmers that everything is being scrutinized. Um, and it's really interesting when you dig in, there's there's antimicrobials that are used in manufacturing. There are antimicrobials used in crop production. Um, they're used in ethanol production. So really all of those uses are coming under more intense scrutiny as we get concerned about antibiot preserving antibiotics to fight human infections. And, I, you know, I think globalization plays a role. Um, we find colistin resistance in pigs in the U.S. Colistin is an antibiotic that's really a last line of use in a lot of 
human cases, but we don't use that in our pigs in the U.S. And, and part of how those resistance genes travel is related to the globalization of supplies and people movements and all those type things. Um, you know, there's more concern because the pipeline has dwindled substantially. There aren't a lot of new drugs coming down the pipeline to replace those uh, where resistance builds up. And then, you know, I think a lot of it is we can just see more of the problem now with these next generation sequencing techniques and, and really rapid genetic sequencing, we can look for antimicrobial resistance genes a lot faster. And we can look in a lot more places than we've been able to in the past. And, and I think we're starting to appreciate that we've only been looking at the tip of the iceberg historically, and, and now we're getting a glimpse of the whole iceberg. And it's, a, you know, for lack of a better word, it's kind of chilling. Horrible pun. Right. <laughs> well, I, I think you raise a really interesting point when we talk about colistin resistance and in pig populations that have never been exposed to, to that antibiotic. And I can remember maybe about eight or 10 years ago now, there was a study done at the University of Minnesota where we were swabbing veterinarians' noses on a regular basis looking for MRSA in swine populations. And there's that continual discussion about antibiotic resistance, but is it really new? Is it that we're just now through sequencing able to really see those, you know, those populations within, within a larger group or, you know, or is it increasing? I guess that's kind of the question we're always left with is what's it really doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, I think it's very clear that it's not new in any sense. And um, it, it certainly is more mobile and the total amount may be increasing, um, but, but it's certainly not a, um, a new phenomenon. And, and understanding those rates is an important part of what a lot of researchers are doing right now to, to really you know, quantify what the, what the future looks like. But you know, I think the issue is that the effects of it get distributed much faster and much further because of that, the globalization of our societies and the interconnectedness. So when resistance arises in one part of the globe, it's now a problem for the rest of the globe, when historically that might not have been the case. You know, resistance might um, arise and then dissipate and disappear again in a region um, because there just weren't those connections to move those genes and, and that genetic material around. So. So I think that's a, that's a huge factor. And then um, a lot of our um, increased ability to detect and discover resistance is based on the genes of resistance. So we can find the, the DNA, we can find the genes that would code for resistance. It's a much harder thing to test and see if the bacteria are truly resistant or not. So, so we have a huge proliferation of studies that demonstrate genetic um, capacity for resistance. And it's hard to know what the denominator for that looked like, you know, 60 years ago, for example, because we didn't have those tests then. We didn't have the ability to look at that at the level we can now. So, so in some ways, I think we're looking more and so we're seeing more. Um, you know, that doesn't mean it's less of a problem necessarily. It means we've underestimated it in the past, but, but I think we have to keep those things in mind. You, we see resistance genes in um, in drilling cores for deep wells and things like that, where there's clearly been no direct human contact. And, and so we know resistance started at the time that, that um, microbes started building defense measures. So, 
Um, it's not new, but certainly human activity and globalization might be accelerating the impact of it. Well, and certainly through through civilization in general, the selection of antibiotics and the use of them has obviously then allowed for that further selection. So if we do have naturally resistant organisms, we're just now kind of selecting down to those. I mean, I think that would be a fair way of, of thinking about the evolution of antibiotic resistance. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So when resistance does arise, we often have um, you know, based on the way we, based on the way that we use them and, and especially in populations, we've potentially created an, an opportunity for that to be disseminated faster um, and, and for it, for those resistant organisms to outcompete other organisms, you know, that that's part of the ecology that we're learning about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would be, you know, in some ways kind of mind blowing to think about that colicin, colicin resistance. Um, I'm sure there's some listeners wondering even how that does move. You know, so initially the thought is, well, corn and soybean meal we raise here in the United States. So what would those pigs be getting exposed to becoming externally? So what are your thoughts? Is it, is it people? Is it potentially feed? And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but when we think about potential introduction of new resistance genes, you know, where should we be thinking about that in the barn? Well, um, I wish I, I wish I had the complete answer to that, you know, but I think the things you mentioned are definitely um, contributing components, right? It was really a bit of an eye-opening experience in the pig world when we started investigating just exactly where a lot of our inputs originate when we were worried about PED and, and trying to work on um, that particular problem, which obviously we still are, but um, it, it sort of forced us to pause and go, okay, so now where do all these things come from? And, and there'd been a dramatic shift to a globalization and supply and, and a consolidation to a smaller number of producers for almost every element, especially in feed, but, but everything, you know, on the farm from technology to um, ventilation controllers to AI rods, all those are impacted by that trend. So I think that's a, that's a big player. I think there, you know, it's possible that colistin resistance has been around at some low level. And since we don't use that drug, we don't select for those organisms and we don't amplify them. So, so maybe there, you know, there's a, there's a random development of some level of resistance gene periodically. We don't select for it. So it doesn't become amplified because we don't use the drug and, and maybe it's always been here to some degree. And, and really, that that's the two extremes, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, and and I think there's a lot of work to be done to kind of sort that out. But I think what it hammers home is that it's very you have to be very careful about um, spending too much time, you know, sort of pointing the finger at who's to blame or or where's the cause because it's such a complex issue that um, you know a lot of factors influence it. And and really, what we all need to be focused on is how do we preserve antimicrobial use for the sick pigs we really need it for, and yet don't endanger outcomes in humans. And, and I think that's a, that's a purpose we can all get on board for. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you brought up a very good point. You know, microbes are everywhere. They're, they're on every surface that we touch. And so there's always the potential of moving something unintentionally just through whatever we're bringing into a barn much like any disease that we deal with on a regular basis. And so, again, we have to just consider all avenues, but focus more on what we can see and, and measure today and, 
and keep trying to do the best that we can moving forward. Um, which which kind of leads me to that next question of, you know, what should those decision makers in the industry really be doing at this point? Well, I think I think there's a couple of things that that's really it's really important that all of us do, um, whether you're a consumer or a producer, you know, if, if you have any connection whatsoever. I, th I think the first thing is you have to educate yourself, um, educate your peers, educate your consumers and do that constantly. And, and make sure you're relying on sources of information that are that are grounded in some sort of evidence or some sort of science. You know, have a have a high bar for what you consider to be evidence and what you consider to be the truth. I think that's that's an important thing, not only um, you know in in sense of protecting ourselves, but but also making sure that the the truth is likely to spread faster than some of the misinformation, which is something we battle all the time. Um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, we're educating others even when we don't think we are. So, um, you know, we have to be very careful that um, our public messages about antimicrobial stewardship are backed up by action on the farm and they're backed up by investment in preventive activities and that we're working to make sure um, we're walking the same talk that we're talking all the time. Um, and, and I think we have to have just a complete and utter intolerance for misinformation, right? You know, uh, we're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving and I just foresee some family discussions gonna eventually get to antibiotics and vaccines and I'm gonna have to bite through my bottom lip to preserve domestic tranquility. But, you know, I feel like at times we still have, to, we still have an obligation to sort of set the record straight sometimes even in those settings. So. Um, you know, maybe I don't get invited back next year, but I think that's a that's a sort of a constant battle. We all have to be willing to engage in. And if you figure out how to do it without alienating folks, then you have a real talent, I think. Um, probably the biggest thing for me is treat antimicrobials as a non-renewable resource instead of treating them as a renewable resource. And given their cost and their ease of um, eat the ease of getting them. I think we have typically treated them as something that's just infinitely available and renewable. And the truth is, anytime we use it, we're probably decreasing the efficacy for somebody somewhere else. And we may not know who that is or, or, or what pigs those are, but it's, so it's easy to be disconnected. But I think we can feel very confident that that's the case now. And so um, treating them as a non-renewable resource is important. And, and that means focus on fixing all the other stuff first before we get to antimicrobials. Get the feed, the water, the air, the stocking density, um, you know, make friends with a nutritionist. It's, it's, not, it's not a terrible idea. And, um, you know, disease resistance, all those things I think are super important um, in order to help uh, win this battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that thought process. In addition, in, in my mind, you know, we can continue to work on animal husbandry and, and identifying sick pigs and, and being proactive in, in those treatments rather than waiting until you have a fire and, and needing to use it across the whole barn, right? Focusing on yep. individual pea care that we talk so much about with PQA and, and really nailing that down to me is another one that pops into my head as you're, as you're talking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's definitely true. How about, so we have lots of topics for our, our producers today. They're, they're worried about labor shortages. Uh, we continually talk about animal welfare and, and interestingly enough, animal welfare and antibiotics tend to come up a lot in the same conversation because 
obviously we're trying to be good stewards of using our antibiotics, but yet we need to use them at some point to take care of the animal and, and do what is best. So how do we start to prioritize welfare and the labor to implement procedures and activities on the farm and antibiotic use? How do we help that producer? Well, that's a that's a great point that you make that, you know, they they sort of come up that sometimes they're tackled independently, but they're really it's really difficult to, to pull them apart separately. And and, you know, antimicrobial, the things that are important for antimicrobial stewardship are actually important for welfare and even for effective use of labor. Right. Healthy animals are just easier to take care of and require um, less effort and less input. So. Um, and you can't separate animal welfare from antimicrobial use, in my opinion, because um, as a veterinarian, I, I can't in good conscience leave an effective tool in the toolbox when an animal is suffering. And clearly, antimicrobials are effective tools. That's, that's why we have so much concern about them, because they're effective in every species, really. And so that, that's, the for me, the challenge is to not allow animal welfare discussions to be disconnected from antimicrobial discussions. I think they're really, they're, they're intertwined and, and what's good for one is generally good for the other as well. You know, I, it sounds a little, I think it sounds a little um, blunt, but for me, the antimicrobial treatment in a lot of ways is a salvage operation from a business perspective. The animal has already endured some suffering. They've already lost some productive capacity. Um, we've lost efficiency in the business when we have to treat an animal that now has clinical signs. And so um, figuring out how to prevent that is always the smarter economic approach. And then um, as a result is generally the better um, decision with respect to labor too. So, so that, I think that's, um, that's the real trick is um, keeping those connected, but recognize that effort in any of the three ultimately improves the other two. We, you know, if employees are better at identifying the right pigs and they treat fewer but but more on target pigs, then you've got better welfare and you've got better antimicrobial stewardship, right? So, so to me, they're not three separate things. You can improve every time you improve one, you improve the other two. That's a very good point. One of the other things that you and I have thrown out here in our conversation is this phrase antibiotic stewardship, but Maybe let's take a moment and step back and really define what antibiotic stewardship is. Yeah, that's a good point because I think we all sort of we all sort of have an intuitive definition of what it means, and um, and and that those are generally pretty good. But uh, antimicrobial stewardship is fairly explicitly defined, and in the human medical fields, um, formal antimicrobial stewardship plans have proliferated, and and in large part because there is some motivation to do so because the way that um, the human uh, medical enterprise is funded and, and there's an ability for, um, for there to be some carrots to get those plans built inside of um, human specialties. In veterinary medicine, the client bears the complete cost. And so for veterinarians, it's a little bit more about um, explaining, training, and recruiting folks to consider these more formal plans. But they're centered around five core principles of five um, core concepts. And the, and the first of those is to commit to stewardship. And, and this is more than, than just giving it airtime, right? It really, it means that somebody in the organization owns it. 
Um, you know, that that's certainly within the Swan Med Education Center. Things only get done if somebody owns the project. Um, it, it's really tough to have multiple owners. So somebody eats, sleeps, and breathes that issue. Um, you have to have a plan that, that folks can um, physically evaluate and read, and you need investment. It's going to take some upfront money um, in order to, to recoup the value. The, the second core is advocate for a system of care to prevent common diseases. This is why I think formal stewardship plans actually illustrate what swine producers are already good at and, and actually prove to the rest of the medical community and to um, a lot of our consumers that we've been on this game for a while now. We've been working to prevent. Biosecurity has always been important to us. We've taken it to pretty sophisticated levels in some instances with filtering and things like that. So um, advocating for that system of preventive care, I think, is where we actually excel, and, and we should demonstrate that. The third is to select and use antimicrobial drugs judiciously. So this is the part of the five that we've also been working on, and, and generally what people consider stewardship is, is really this judicious use, and that's using evidence, finding barriers to the correct use of them, and then assessing outcomes. You know, one of the one of the things I like about being in the pig arena for health is the, the laboratories function in every day. And it's a matter of how much data we manage to collect and how quickly we manage to learn from it. The fourth then is evaluate antimicrobial drug use practices. So what works, what doesn't work and should be discarded because it's just an old paradigm or it started when we didn't have better options or you know, we, we all have examples of those. Um, but but figure out what what works and distribute that um, as far as we can. And then the last is educate and build expertise, right? And I think what we're learning is that there are some um, gaps in our education system that um, we can fill in and that we can um, create a higher level of utility for our graduates and prepare them better. And so there are a lot of exciting programs going on in, in that arena as well. But those five, those really those five core principles, educate, build expertise, evaluate drug use practices, select and use antimicrobial drugs judiciously, advocate for a system of preventive care and commit to stewardship are, are really the foundation. And I think we excel at some of those already, so we should let the world know about it. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. We do so many of those already and we don't really even think about it. Um, and we don't talk about it as much as we should. So. Certainly, that's something we should continue to move forward and, and communicate with our consumers and, and others. And, and I do think at some point we'll be expected to build those plants. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's on the horizon. Now, the question is, will it be, um, you know, will, the, will it be the carrot or the, or the whip approach to getting it done, right? And I, think, I think we have an opportunity to, to make it the carrot approach by getting out in front of it and, and demonstrating some value and and getting it done ahead of that. Well, that was going to be one of my questions to you is I've seen through other production companies where they'll put a slide up and say, here's our antibiotic use over the years, and you can see how it's declining. Is, is that the right metric that we want to share? Or is there a different one that we might want to be thinking about as we're going through these five core principles? Well, I think um, certainly the a lot of the consumer pressure really focuses on the amount. And I think the reason for that is, is that it's the easiest thing to quantify. We can talk about total pounds, you know, and, and it's, it's a bit, 
it's not the correct metric entirely. It's certainly, um, you know, a valuable piece and, and an excellent start. But I think we also have to consider things like um, number of doses, um, how many animals are being treated, how many doses they see. Um, because when you rely on things just like total use or weight, um, you're counting, first of all, non-active ingredients and some drugs that are less effective weigh more. And so, um, you know, there's an advantage to, to taking those out of the system, but some drugs that are more effective and less of a risk in terms of resistance development, they might weigh more and, and, and skew the numbers. So, so I think we have to, it's a good place to start, but it's certainly important to move on to the next metric. And a lot of them have been um, evaluated, you know, a lot of work that um, Dr. Peter Davies and um, Mike Apley and, and others have been involved in to try and put better metrics together. And certainly there's been a lot of work on that in the European Union, but ultimately we've got to get to something that reflects um, what drug and what dose to, to really understand how we're moving the needle. That's a good point. One of the other terms I heard you throw in there just a little bit ago was was medically valued, valued or medically important. And we had this discussion many years ago when the BFD regulations changed and we talked about it, but maybe some of our viewers may not be very familiar with that. That might be more of a U.S. term versus versus other countries. Could you maybe walk us through what medically important antibiotics really mean? Sure. Uh, the medically important antibiotics are, are really a category that has been determined by um, a number of different professional organizations, in it, and it really relates to what's medically important in humans. And so they're actually lists by the, um, the FDA, the European Union, OIE, and others, um, the World Health Organization, um, and those lists vary a little bit. So you'll want to you'll want to seek out the list in your particular region. But but essentially, they are priorities um, for reducing their use in in animals and other places because they're critically important to humans. So so the the medically important term really reflects their role in human medicine, and those are the ones that we can expect the most. Uh, potential pressure with respect to use, the ones that are going to get the most scrutiny, the ones that in some cases might actually be preserved and um, not available for animal use. Those are some um, developing issues, in, especially in the European Union. So um, it's important to understand what's on that list. And in the swine world, there are several that are very important to um, swine health that are on that list. And, and understanding the specific components and how the list might be used is pretty important. In the US, it's actually defined in a guidance document from the FDA that you can um, pretty readily search up and um, guidance for industry 152, I believe that has an appendix in the back and, and that's subject to some revision too. So there's some ongoing discussion about how drugs might be reclassified moving forward on that list. Very good point. As we kind of wrap up our time, we've, we've talked going ahead. So let's let's go there. Let's talk about what do you see on the horizon or what's on the future in terms of antibiotic resistance and antibiotic usage? Well, um, that's a great question. So, and I'll give you, because it, because it's the future, I give you the five minute, five mile guarantee. But, um, you know, when you look at what's going on and, and what I think is already in discussion on the horizon, um, there are a couple of things to, to pay attention to. The first is um, how do we, there's a lot of uh, discussion at, at various government levels about how do we fix the, 
supply pipeline of new antimicrobials. So there's actually some legislation um, that's in process now to try and um, subsidize to some degree the development of new antimicrobials and disconnect um, the potential profitability of those drugs from their adoption or use. And so there's some encouragement to, um, to develop new drugs. It's a very expensive process, especially in the U.S. where the sponsor bears the uh, most of the brunt of the approval process in terms of cost. And so um, there are new strategies being developed to that, which I think are important and very positive. Um, on the negatives, there'll, there'll be more restriction against use in animals. So currently, um, prevention, control, and treatment are the three FDA-defined activities, you know, for which you can use an antimicrobial. And, and obviously, prevention is the one that's currently getting the most scrutiny. Um, it has a very specific definition, and I think we have to make sure that um, we, we help people understand that as it's defined. Um, but that one is, it may be on the way out. That might be the next target we need to, we need to think about in terms of uh, how do we preserve that. Definitely more reporting. Um, it's voluntary at the moment, but I don't think it's gonna be that way for long. We've noticed state by state legislation that has started to require reporting. So um, new legislation in Maryland, um, it's been some bills introduced in New York, a couple of other states. And, um, you know, this would be a, a long, long time strategy to introduce these provisions at the state level um, until ultimately there's some momentum to do it at the federal level. So so be on the lookout for that. I think states without large livestock economies, you know, might potentially offer little resistance to that because they don't they don't necessarily appreciate the impact um, and they may have a, you know, may have an, an, an over. Uh, overestimate of the value of those activities. So we have to pay attention to that. Um, and then I think the, the really the, in terms of folks in ag, you know, those are gonna find ways to lessen the need for antibiotics the fastest are gonna be the best positioned in the future. You know, so if you take the Wayne Gretzky approach, you wanna know where the puck is going, um, figuring out how to use less antimicrobials at all levels is gonna put you in a better position regardless of um, which of those other ideas truly um, happens down the road. Yeah, I think that's a great summary to our conversation today is going back to those five key core principles, going through them step by step and, and really getting down to preventing disease or, or managing the disease the best way we can through vaccination, biosecurity and, and production management, nutrition, et cetera, so that we do continue to naturally lessen our need on antibiotics or for antibiotics. It is time to our famous three. Since 1971, ZinPro has focused on improving the health and well-being of animals. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, ZinPro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to ZinPro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So Locke, as we kind of wrap up today, as you know, we like to ask our speaker a couple of questions. The first one we like to ask is what is your favorite swine resource book? Well, I mean, I have a huge bias, right? But I think it's diseases of swine, partly just because I know um, very intimately all the fantastic folks that contributed to that. And, and it's a good starting point, especially when I have no idea um, about a particular topic that always seems to have the info to at least get me functional um, from that point. 
So yeah, that that's probably the one for me. Mm-hmm. Very fair. How about uh, something that's not swine related that you would recommend to our readers or our audience, whether it's you know just enjoyable reading or something for personal development? So one thing that um, that the one thing I've read that was very very useful to me, and especially in my current role where I manage a, a small team that that's got to be nimble and flexible and, and um, really values teamwork, is a book called The Carolina Way. Um, which is uh, leadership lessons from a life in coaching. It was written by Dean Smith and Gerald Bell um, and Kilgore. And it was an easy read for me because I'm an alumni and I know it's going to be hard on the Kentucky and Kansas fans and so forth. But, um, you know, managing a team is very much like managing um, uh, an organization or, or a small um, production group. And so there are a ton of parallels. That book was really useful to me to understand them and how they work and, and, you know, if you can, you can ignore your, your allegiances for a little, I think there's handy stuff in there for anybody who's managing teams and managing groups. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm sure the title caught your attention very quickly with, with Carolina in there for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. Yeah. So the last question we like to ask is really, if you think about people that you've defined as successful or you view as successful in our industry and I'm not going to define success. You have to give it your own personal definition. Um, what would be a key characteristic or trait that they possess that you think has helped them become successful in the field? That's a really good question. It's um, it's sort of hard to narrow down, I think. But but I think the the most valuable one is just a um, intense curiosity, right? Um, because I feel like if you have an intense curiosity, if you really want to know what's the truth or what's over the next hill or what the data says or what the pigs are going to do when you use a treatment, you know, if you have that intense curiosity, then you'll put up with a lot of other challenges along the way to get there. And so, uh, you know, I see that in a lot of people that are, that are successful in a number of different arenas. It's, it's curiosity, you know, we talk about it as love for what you do. I think that's a lot the same thing, but but just this intense curiosity about what's over the next hill, what's the next topic I want to go and see. Um, and I think that's a that can be an incredible driver and help you deal with a lot of other things along the way. That is a wonderful skill to have for sure. Well, again, for our audience today, uh, this is Dr. Locke Carricker from Iowa State's College of Veterinary Medicine. Locke, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you very much for having me, Laura. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation. Yes, take care. All right, see ya. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.